Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. That was like literally my first foray into the idea that girls can get hurt easily. That you can't just walk to a freaking payphone and call somebody without having to look over your shoulder. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting far, far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen, but we're close in spirit. And... In heart. Always in heart. Thank you for the enthusiasm, William. <laughs> Sometimes not in heart. Most of the time not in heart. Um, how are you doing, guys? Great. How are you? Good. I'm just I'm very excited right. to uh record this episode. We've got a cool next two episodes for you guys that I'm very, very excited about. And Alexis is just a fucking genius with everything that she does. So you guys, I think you guys will be excited about the thematic components that we've incorporated mm. and things that will resonate very personally with each and every one of you in some special way. Exactly. Well, before we jump into it, Billy, what day is it today? It's May 12th, and that means it's National Limerick Day. <laughs> I love a limerick. I know. Yes. I, I saw that one, and I'm like, this this has got to be the one that Billy chooses for Alexis. My Costanza stanzas are mm-hmm. the first few have been limerick esque. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're very easy to write, and they're really fun because they rhyme. Yes, if you don't know what the Costanza stanzas are, you have to listen to Killing Time. Yes, which is every Thursday. So. You have every to Thursday. you have to listen to the end of Killing Time because I feel yes. like some people probably turn it off before the Costanza stanza makes its debut. So tomorrow in the new episode of Killing Time, which by the way is part of our feed, I know a lot of people were searching for Killing Time by itself on the podcast feed. But it's part of our feed. It will pop up if you subscribe to the podcast. So stick around for that. There are other good days, though. It's Nurse Appreciation Day, I believe. Yes. Mm -hmm. I always appreciate a good nurse. Yes. Uh, And I think it was uh, Fudge Day or something. It was Nutty Fudge Day. It wasn't chocolate. It was Nutty Fudge Day. So that's why I didn't say. Ew. Why why ruin ruin fudge for everybody? No. It's also it's also ironically National Root Canal Day. Oh. Mm. Too much Mm. nutty fudge. I don't like Mm -hmm. a nut in my chocolate. It ruins it. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Mm -mm -mm. All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety. 
because this could be you. Looking back at our formative years, there are distinct moments that reveal the brutal truths of the world. Where innocence fades, where the sheltered reality you once possessed falls to the wayside and a sense of self-preservation kicks in. It's when you realize you've been blissfully naive, when you realize you're not safe and neither is anyone else. These feelings become especially potent if you're one degree from a brutal crime which reveals these unfair ways of the world. Most guests on the first degree were unlucky enough to be one degree away from a single crime. But over the next two episodes, we're going to tell you two different stories of two brutal crimes, both told from the perspective of one first degree who watched them both unfold. So today's case takes us back to March 27th of 1990. Songs Black Velvet by Alana Myers and I Wish It Would Rain by Phil Collins were playing on the radio. And movies Pretty Woman and The Hunt for Red October were in theaters. And a fun fact, one of Alexis and my best friends was the little girl in Hunt for Red October. Louise, look out for her. Yes, cute little girl in that movie. So cute. The setting for today's case is Ninica, Oklahoma. And the town name is derived from the Choctaw word Ninek, which means night or darkness. Ninica is located in a rural agricultural region, and farm equipment is manufactured in the community. It's an extremely small town, but according to the Oklahoma Historical Society, the town does boast an active senior citizens group, a store, two churches, a post office, and a public school system. And today's first degree is Jess, and she called Ninica home in her formative years. The town that I grew up in was is Minnecock, Oklahoma. Me and my brother and sister went to school there all through grade school. For me, it was just very, it was home. You know, it was a very tight-knit community. Um, I think the population when I was in grade school was maybe like a 1,000, and I had a lot of family there. We were sheep farmers, and my, my grandparents were sheep farmers. My grandparents lived right across the street from the school, and uh, everybody knew each other. Besides being sheep farmers, Jess's mother also worked as a substitute teacher at Cement High School. My mom was actually substituting there at Nenica the year that she, the year that this happened. This whole ordeal began when Jess heard that a 17-year-old schoolmate of hers named Tanya Rogers had come up missing, which is something that just doesn't happen in Nenica. I think it came on like a Channel 4. I think we were watching TV. I can't, I can't remember exactly how my parents found out, but I think we saw it on the news that something had happened to her and that she was missing. They said that her mom had reported her missing. Tanya Rogers was a 17-year-old junior at Ninaka High School. She rode the bus with Jess, our first degree, and her older brother, who was in the same grade as Tanya. She had long, light hair and brown eyes. She was popular, she was well-liked, and she had a boyfriend named Ricky Start, who she'd been dating for about a year. We had just transferred to Phoenix, and my brother was in Tanya's class. We rode the same school bus. She was, she was very, very nice. She was like a lot of the girls there at the school. She was very outgoing. She was really pretty. She had like the big bangs like the other girls had in like the late 80s, early 90s. She was always very talkative. She was a very, very sweet girl. To hear that Tanya was missing was a huge shock. And the circumstances under which she'd gone missing were very disturbing. Slowly, those details were made public. And here's how it happened. 
she lived in this little subdivision called Southgate, and it was just outside of town. And we found out that she had been on the payphone because her, uh, they didn't have a phone in her house. So because Tanya's family didn't have a phone, a routine emerged. Nightly, Tanya would borrow her mom's car and drive the three blocks from her house to the Southgate Mini Mall. The Mini Mall itself was right off Highway 19 in Chickasha, Oklahoma. There, there was an abandoned convenience store that had a working payphone. And it was from this payphone that Tanya called her boyfriend, Ricky, almost every night, including on this evening of Tuesday, March 27th, which is the night she went missing. So when Tanya would call Ricky, she would park the car facing the payphone and she'd leave her headlights on so she could see, you know, kind of everything around her while she was making her phone calls. So on this particular evening, she called her boyfriend and they spoke from approximately 9.15 to 9.45 that night. When it was 10 p.m. and Tanya failed to return home, her mom began to worry. Tanya's mom and sister decided they were going to drive around and look for her. They drove down to the payphone where they knew Tanya always made her nightly calls. And it was there that they spotted the family car in the parking lot near the payphone. It's right where they expected it to be. But Tanya was not inside the vehicle. And then when they got closer, they knew something was terribly wrong. The window had been busted out, and the car was still sitting in the same place. And the lights were still on, but she wasn't there. And there was just broken glass uh, all over her car. It was the driver's side window that had been busted out. Even more alarming was the fact that the keys to the car were in the ignition. The scene was kind of ominous. Had a struggle occurred? Had someone taken Tanya? Or is there some reasonable explanation for all of this? Terrified, Tanya's mother and sister immediately drove to Ricky's house. Maybe Tanya's boyfriend knew where she was. So it was approximately 10.30 at night when Tanya's worried family rolled up to Ricky's house. And to their horror, she wasn't there. When asked, Ricky confirmed that he had spoken to Tanya and she had made her nightly call to him. So on this call, she seemed to be in this great mood, and they had made plans to see each other the upcoming weekend. And according to Ricky, the call was really normal and not out of the ordinary at all. But there was something that happened. Tanya mentioned that a truck had pulled into the empty parking lot and stopped for about two minutes before pulling out and leaving while she was making this call. And Ricky didn't know anything else about the truck because it was kind of innocuous at the time. Although he did say that the truck was rather loud and he could hear this heavy diesel engine idling. So the pair eventually said their goodbyes and Tanya hung up. The fact that Tanya wasn't at Ricky's transformed this worrisome situation into a dire, emergent one. Tanya's mother reported her missing immediately. Hours later, it was on the news and the radio. Her mom reported her missing that's all we knew for the rest of the night. I remember sitting in front of the TV with my parents. It was just crazy for everybody because it, it was just something that had never happened before, ever, you know, especially in a town that small. Everybody was glued to the television and everybody knew about it. It was really freaky and scary. And it was literally my first experience with anything like that ever. Once law enforcement was involved, they reported to the scene of the damaged and abandoned car that Tanya had been driving. They observed the broken window and the shattered glass. Also near the car, they spotted a brown paper bag and some sort of compass, which looks similar to those ones that are found on the survival knives. And of course, at this point, it would have been impossible to know whether these discarded items had any relevance to Tanya's disappearance. A ground search of the area began immediately and continued into Wednesday's daylight hours. And when the sun came up on Wednesday morning, news of Tanya's disappearance was the talk of the town and within the halls of the local high school. It was 
surreal because nothing like that had ever happened in Enochaw before. Enochaw is one of those places where it's really small. Like there was like one grocery store and there were no streetlights. You know, all the kids rode their bikes to school or they walked to school and everybody left their doors unlocked. At my house, they're in, uh, they're in town. We never locked our doors at night. And then after that, it changed everything. The ground search for Tanya continued through the following day and volunteers were searching along the rivers in the area. And it was there, next to a creek, that they made a very upsetting discovery. There were some articles of clothing that they believed to be Tanya's. Then another discovery, several buttons which appeared to have come from one of Tanya's sweaters. More alarming still, a substance that looked like blood was found near the creek also. These locations where the discoveries were made were approximately three and a half miles from the convenience store parking lot where Tanya had vanished from. Certainly, the fear for Tanya's safety would have been overwhelming for her family. This whole situation is every parent's worst nightmare. The searchers did their best to remain hopeful in the face of these very grim findings. Volunteers rotated in shifts in the search for Tanya, and at approximately 1 a.m. on Thursday night, they were searching near the Bitter Creek Bridge just south of Chickasha, Oklahoma. And it was here that the volunteers found Tanya Rogers' body. When she was found, the only clothing she was wearing was a single sock. Her hands were tied behind her back with a shoelace, and law enforcement believed that she had been in the water for about 24 hours. And based on the visible stab wounds on her body, it was clear that she had been murdered. The community's worst fears had been realized. Tanya was no longer missing. She had been murdered. Which meant that someone within their tiny community of under 1,000 people had abducted and killed this innocent high school student. What kind of monster would do this? And perhaps more importantly, how are the police going to catch them? There was a huge outcry for justice. It changed everybody, and not, not just in Manicaw, but like in the neighboring town, the whole surrounding area. It scared the shit out of everybody because it, we just weren't used to it. You know, we just weren't used to things like that happening. Girls weren't found in, in creek beds. You know what I mean? I keep using the word surreal, but that's exactly what it was. It was it was insane. People started locking their doors, and for a while there, you know, people they, they weren't letting their kids walk to school anymore. As Jess said, there was massive outcry for justice, which meant that local law enforcement were facing tremendous pressure to catch the individual who killed this teen girl. But there was very little to go off of. Where would police begin this investigation? So normally, the obvious place to start would have been with Tanya's boyfriend, Ricky. But there was all of this proof that Ricky was at home when Tanya had gone missing. Plus, Tanya's family members had showed up at Ricky's house almost immediately, and there was no sign of her there. Reporters at the Daily Oklahoman actually caught up with Ricky the day after Tanya's body was found. And they reported that his eyes were red and that he hadn't returned to school. He said he didn't even know what day it was because he hadn't slept since learning Tanya was missing after he spoke to her on the phone Tuesday night. He seemed totally gutted by the loss of Tanya. As far as places for the police to start, there wasn't much that they could learn from the site where Tanya had been found. There was no murder weapon, and any other evidence was really sparse. But meanwhile, Tanya's medical examination revealed that she had been stabbed in the chest with a long knife. She also had a blow to the back of the head and a cut on her arm. There were some small bruises on her face and a bruise on her knee. All of these wounds occurred before her death, but there were also some post-mortem wounds as well. As more details became public, sadness flooded this tiny community, and everyone was devastated. 
surely no more so than Tanya's friends, family, and her boyfriend. Members of Tanya's school community, including teachers, brought Tanya's family meals and flowers to try to help them get through the emotional catastrophe of losing Tanya. She was so pretty, and she had so many friends. She didn't seem to have any enemies at all. She was very bubbly, very outgoing. Everyone at school liked her. It's just such a shame. It's just senseless. It's ridiculous. The police took a hard look within Tanya's close inner circle to see if any one of them could lead to the answer of what happened to her. But frankly, there was nothing in Tanya's life that was amiss. She had friends and family who loved her. So the belief was that a stranger must have been responsible for taking the young teen's life. When asked, Tanya's boyfriend Ricky told the police that, generally speaking, she was leery of strangers. She took precautions, like leaving her headlights on when they spoke on the payphone. She was always very cautious. Word gets around and rumors get around, and especially at small high schools like that, you know, the adults aren't telling you anything, so you just kind of come up with your own theories. I'll put it to you this way. There were a lot of rumors, and I remember this, and I was 15 when this happened, and I still remember this. There were rumors that she had been found with her hands and her feet tied with piano wire, which was not true, and that she had been raped by some homeless person, even though she, I don't think, I actually don't think she was, she was raped, even though I'm, I'm sure it was a sexually motivated crime. That people thought that some homeless person had just found her, you know, had seen her at the payphone, and and had just, you know, taken her. So there were rumors, and that's, that was pretty much what was going on until, until it was actually established, like, exactly what had happened and who had done it. So according to the reporting, what Jessica just said is correct. There apparently wasn't evidence of rape, but there's no doubt, if this was in fact a stranger, that this was a sexually motivated crime. When you see characteristics like her hands being bound behind her back and her clothes Mm -hmm. being removed. Clearly, just because there wasn't any sort of penetration, this is sexual, right, Billy? Like, you know, we've talked about this with other cases. Um, Explain what you know about this sort of phenomenon. No, no, definitely. If if she was found potentially naked, that, uh, but there were no uh, tie behind the back, there were no uh, stab wounds, that could be that could be any number of things. You often do find um, uh, overdose dumps of people. Uh, they might take their clothes off because you know these people are are completely out of their minds and they feel like they they're trying to get rid of evidence and they take the clothes off of the the body. But with this, where you have the hands tied behind their backs and the um, and certainly the stab wounds, it very well could have been that the uh, the perpetrator couldn't uh, penetrate her for whatever reason. And, um, you know, we can all often, we've often heard about that the, the knife takes the place of, of the penetration in that case, uh, which very well could have been what was going on. And the killer, I mean, could have, yeah, like you said, he, they could have wanted to and maybe got freaked out, maybe thought they were going to get caught and just ran away, maybe couldn't. So there's a lot of reasons I feel like that they're, that they didn't end up raping her as well. Right. And so what do you guys make of this, a single stab wound to the heart? That's sort of a very interesting way to do something like this. You know what I mean? It's not the super intimate thing we see sometimes, and it's not really a detached method either. It's sort of I mean, something. it's so ag- aggressive. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I mean, it is intimate, isn't it? I mean, that, unless you're 
It's, I guess it is. It's, I mean, it's the most jarring thing that I could think of. I and don't it know. also seems sort of medieval to me. Like a single stab wound in your heart is sort of something you read in like folklore books and fantasy sort of sword and stone type things. It's just an odd, seemingly kind of juvenile sort of mindset, maybe, or maybe I'm way off base. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program and it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death 
in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. While evidence in the case was scant, there were some leads. Two sets of footprints had been found on the banks of the creek where Tanya had been located. And then there was what Tanya had said to Ricky during their phone call. Remember about that big diesel truck that had pulled into the parking lot briefly. But all these leads were pretty obtuse. And there was tangible evidence for police to sink their teeth into. Even though the investigation wasn't looking particularly promising, the police wouldn't have to wait long before zeroing in on a main suspect. It's not completely clear, based on the reporting or the court documents, how the name of 25-year-old Randy Scott Perry first appeared on law enforcement's radar. One article said a witness gave police a description of a vehicle that stopped on Bitter Creek Bridge near the place where Tanya was found. And it was this vehicle description that led police to Terry's front door. Another report said that Perry's half-brother turned him in after he confessed. There is no way for us to know for sure with the materials we have. From what I remember... He had confessed to his brother. His brother worked at worked at the Dairy Queen in Chickasha, and apparently he had confessed to his brother. Here's what we know. Whether it was the vehicle description or Perry's brother, when police searched Perry's stepfather's car, which was parked at their home, they discovered blood and other evidence which conclusively linked him to Tanya's murder. So news of an arrest being made in Tanya's case was this huge relief. This monster now had a face and a name, but who the hell was Randy Scott Perry? And here's what we know. Perry was living with his mother, his stepfather, and his half-brother, Kevin Patterson. And Perry was newly back in town. Up until recently, he'd been enlisted in the military and was living on Fort Jackson Base in South Carolina. And it didn't appear that Perry knew Tanya at all. She just seemed to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Perry was arrested at his parents' home by members of the Oklahoma Bureau of Investigation and Grady County Sheriff's deputies. He was charged with first-degree murder with malice aforethought, as well as kidnapping. And malice aforethought is basically saying that the killer was intent on killing that night. He was denied bond. The fact that Randy Scott Perry had been a soldier, someone who's supposed to be a protector, was another crushing blow to the community. I myself am an army brat. My dad was a soldier. After the arrest, people were (laughs) screaming for blood. (laughs) They were pissed that it was a soldier. They were pissed that it was so senseless. It was clear that it was a sexually motivated crime, but then it came out that he hadn't actually raped her. He had stripped her. And the way it seemed was that he, he had planned to do something, and then I don't know if he was something had scared him and so he just stabbed her in the heart and then just left her there. Oklahoma is a death penalty state. If we know you did something and it was something as horrible as that, they wanted you to to pay for it. And so everybody was uh, was screaming for the death penalty. The home belonging to Perry's mother and stepfather was searched and they found a lot of weird shit but no murder weapon. But it didn't matter because the police knew that they had their guy. Perry was interrogated. His family was questioned, too. And through the course of those conversations, law enforcement was able to piece Randy Scott Perry's movements together on the day Tanya went missing. So apparently, at 5 p.m. on the day of Tanya's murder, Perry had gotten out of bed. 
So this guy gets out of bed at 5 p.m. So we're dealing with a real winner. But anyways, he polished off a one liter bottle of tequila that he'd been nursing from the previous day. He ate dinner and apparently this guy drinks approximately a half a liter of tequila on a daily basis. Again, a winner. This wasn't a special occasion, just a regular day for him. At some point that evening, Perry's mother, who was named Beverly, asks Perry if he would mind picking his half-brother Kevin Patterson up from his work shift at the local Dairy Queen. Perry agreed to help his mom and left the house around 9.30 to pick up his half-brother Kevin. Patterson spoke to the police and said that he was working at the DQ that night until about 10.15 and was picked up by Perry at around 10.30. Now, this is crazy. Because this means that within this time frame, Perry had already killed Tanya by the time he picked up his brother. That's crazy. Right. That's crazy because she was missing by 945 because she didn't make it home by 10. So he did that and then he he actually had to go pick up his brother. And based on the information we have access to, it's not clear, though, whether he had moved her to the creek by then or not. And Perry's brother, Kevin, continued with his story. He said that once he was in the brown Chevy Nova with his brother, Perry wanted to stop for gas. He also said that he wanted to look for his hat, which he thought that he left in the abandoned convenience store parking lot. And then he also wanted to check the bridge. So these are obviously two very relevant locations to Tanya's disappearance and her murder. So Kevin also said that there is a police scanner in their stepdad's car. And while they were filling up the tank, they heard this radio correspondence that was going back and forth regarding Tanya's disappearance. And as the two men listened... Perry then confessed that the cops were talking about the girl that he killed. But there's more, even more damning evidence implicating Perry. His mother Beverly told police that when he returned home that night, his clothes were wet and he was sandy. There was also hair matching Tanya's that was found in the car Perry drove that night. Due to the senseless, the randomness, and the terrifying nature of this crime, it had garnered considerable media coverage. But a new wave of coverage was about to shock the community even further. After Randy Scott Perry's arrest, he was completing his intake paperwork, and one of the questions asked for specifics about religion. And it was there that he wrote that he practiced Satanism. When law enforcement saw this, they made this connection about the items that they found in Perry's room during the search of his parents' house. So they had found a satanic Bible and these satanic-type posters, but at the time there was no context in terms of the significance to those items. But now there was. Now, this crime was committed in 1990, which is on the heels of the notorious satanic panic. Starting in the early 80s, America, particularly American media, was in the grip of what's become known as satanic panic. Satan and Satan worshipers were everywhere. They were organized and they were here to do the devil's business. Musicians were trying to recruit young people with their song lyrics. Dungeons and Dragons was trying to recruit kids through their games. Even the Smurfs were supposed to be part of the army of the devil. And the TV programs added gas to the fire. This was a real thing. Geraldo Rivera actually had a TV special on cults. And he actually said, quote, estimates are that there are over 1 million Satanists in the U.S. linked to a highly organized secretive network. You know, there were cases like the McMartin preschool trial. There was just in which a family who had run a preschool in California was accused of molesting dozens of children and engaging in satanic practices, very much like the witch trials. There was a lot of this going on. So was there a satanic connection to Tanya's killing? No one was quite sure, but odds were no, This was probably just a kid with a few books. 
Tanya's funeral service was proof of how many people in this community loved her and felt her loss. Approximately 500 mourners attended the service at the Ninica First Baptist Church, which is literally half of the population in this town. And while this was happening, Perry was in jail and he was awaiting his trial date. And it was at this point that law enforcement made a startling connection from Perry's past. So Perry stupidly couldn't keep his mouth shut when he was behind bars, and under questioning, he had implicated himself in a brutal crime that occurred three years prior. Right. In 1987, there had been an attack on two women inside their Shawnee apartment. It was during the early morning hours of September 17, 1987, when a man, without permission, had entered the apartment of 22-year-old Shelly Thompson and 21-year-old Kathy Essek. Once inside, he attacked the women with a 12-inch knife. During the chaotic struggle, one of the women was cut in the hands and in the leg. But the man was then stabbed in the chest after one of these women was able to wrestle the knife from his grasp, which is so badass. He then fled from the living room window. These women were so incredibly lucky to escape this encounter with their lives. When the police came, the police saw a trail of blood that led out of the living room window. Obviously, no one was arrested for this crime, and there were no leads that could help identify the suspect. But now, police knew who it was, Randy Scott Perry, a guy who is clearly a serial offender. And Randy Scott Perry's trial began on November 7th, 1990. It lasted only two days. It's a short trial. But the evidence against him was pretty ironclad. Several witnesses testified against him, including members of his own family. He was found guilty. They had found blood in the car that I think he had borrowed from his mom. And then on with his brother's testimony. It took jurors only 90 minutes to find Randy Scott Perry guilty. The sentencing phase took about the same amount of time. And then they did give him the death penalty initially. But later, and I don't remember what year it was, they commuted his sentence. And so he ended up getting life in prison. Regardless of Randy Scott Perry's fate, he's lived a worthless life rotting behind bars at Lawton Correctional Facility in Oklahoma. Tanya Rogers, on the other hand, is missed every single day. Tanya is buried at the Ninica Cemetery, a place that our first-degree Jess has a connection to as well. I put flowers on my grandparents' graves every holiday. So I went down there, and when I walked over to our burial plot, where they're buried and then my two uh, infant nephews are buried there, And I looked over to the right because there was this grave there that was just, it was, it's beautiful. It's got this little, this, uh, this pretty little white, tiny little fence around it. And there's all these little statues and figurines. It's just very well maintained. And so it caught my attention and I looked at it and it was Tanya's grave. I was really surprised because I, I didn't remember her, her being buried there, you know, many, many years ago, the last time I'd seen my grandparents' graves. There's always like new little little figurines, like angel statues and stuff that are brave. It's really, it's really, really sweet. It's really nice. And so every time I go there now to visit my grandparents, I always make sure to say hi to Tanya. And she's in very good company because my grandparents were amazing. And the well-kept grave confirms everything we've read about Tanya, that she was totally loved by everyone. That being said, before we wrap things up, there's one thing left we have to discuss. This man who stole Tanya's life, Randy Scott Perry, was 23 years old when he committed the attempted murder on the two women in their apartments. He was 25 when he took Tanya's life. So this really does beg the question, how many others may have fallen victim to this psycho? There really is no way to answer that, 
but I'll tell you something that makes me think the three people we know about definitely aren't the only ones. I was doing research and I found an article that people had actually been commenting on very recently, 2020 recently, last year. And remember, this happened in 1990. I know for sure Tanya's mother was commenting on it. Ricky Start, her boyfriend at the time, was commenting on it. And just tons of people were weighing in on this relatively recent article about someone remembering Tanya and what had happened. And I read one comment that really made my blood run cold. So I'm going to exclude the woman's name to preserve her privacy, but listen to what it said. So it was posted on July 25th, 2020 at 2.53 a.m. So she said, in 1986 in Vernon, Texas, I thought I was safe living with a chief of police but I was wrong. This officer's friend, Randy Scott Perry, kidnapped me, raped me, and tortured me. And when I broke away running for my life, he caught me again, and I finally got away running as fast as I could, thinking finally someone would help me get to a phone. I called 911. I told police what had happened. The whole precinct showed up, and this officer I was staying with showed up and told me not to ever call 911 from his house again, and that I shouldn't make up stupid lies. They're the reason Randy didn't get charged and thrown in jail. And they're probably the reason that Randy went on to attack two unsuspecting women and kill an innocent high school girl. So obviously there's no way for me or any of us to corroborate this post without doing some stalking of this woman, which, you know, interestingly, Tanya's mother said, please call me. Oh, really? Uh Uh-huh. Like they were corresponding. It was so fascinating. Um, And there's no way to know how many people Randy Scott Perry may have harmed. And there's also no way to know how many people possessing this same kind of evil are walking around the streets. And it's for all these reasons that this ordeal was so eye-opening to Jess, our first degree, as it unfolded. I was 15 at the time, and this was the catalyst that made me discover that we're not innocent. What I really learned what existentialism was, like I learned about my existence and mortality and that like we can't live forever and that you can't just live carefree and, and uh, you know, we just be naive for the rest of your life. And that women need to be careful. That was like literally my first foray into the idea that girls can get hurt easily. That you can't just walk to a freaking payphone and call somebody without having to look over your shoulder. We're not just gonna live forever. All right, well, a huge thank you to Jess for being our first degree this episode. She is gonna stick around and be our first degree for next week's episode as well. A completely different story, which is just fucking crazy. If you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the first degree, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group because we're talking true crime all the time. And check back tomorrow for a brand new full episode of Killing Time in our feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But but um, not that, that close. close. Felt so good in the beginning. Happy Limerick Day. Happy not f- nutty fudge day. Yes. Fuddy, fuddy nudge day I'm down for though. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. 
Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring and creating original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, producing an additional writing by Taylor Rogers, and Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for today's episode are The Sunday Oklahoman, The Associated Press, Seattle Times, Tulsa World, The Oklahoman, Jenks 87, Find a Grave, The Journal Times, and as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source. I was shocked, you know? They were always such a good team, so successful. But to do something like that? To exceed their budget? While being over budget might not be a crime, it can disrupt workflows. With Monday.com, you and the team can be sure that you're all in sync. All the data, latest updates, files, and budgets are visible to everyone, so you won't miss a thing. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.